Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of people finding their fertile ground through their own grit and resilience stories. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Do you struggle to put words to the screen? Is writing the very last thing you want to do in your day? My mission is to make communications painless for my clients. I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear dynamic narrative. I help my clients discover how to tell their stories or solve their communications challenges. Look us up on FurlaGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations, the people who don't always get a platform. Check out my website for more details. This week, I interview Tracy Osborne from Dallas, Georgia. Tracy has been a victim of sexual assault and domestic abuse. She's bounced around in a wide variety of jobs while parenting her four daughters. She now helps other trauma survivors through founding the Global Association for Trauma Recovery. Let's meet Tracy and hear her story. Hello, Tracy. Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Thank you for having me, Marie. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm glad to have you. You are coming to us from Dallas, Texas. Is that right? No, Dallas, Georgia. Oh, Dallas, Georgia. For some reason, I just thought it was Texas. I didn't know there was a Dallas in Georgia. <laughs> it's it's very small town, but I do get that a lot when I say Dallas. I have to make it very clear, Georgia. And typically, I usually say I'm just outside Atlanta. Ah, interesting. Wow. It seems like I have interviewed a lot of people from Georgia for some random reason. So let's start out by having you tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood and family like? Uh, okay, so I was born in California and lived um, in the Bay Area for about the first few years of my life, about the first 10 years. And when I was around probably nine or 10, my mother came out to me as being gay. I didn't understand it at the time. I, I didn't really get it. You know, this is back in the early 80s. And, and the way she explained it to me was odd as well. So it made me very uncomfortable being around her. Because I didn't know if every time she hugged me or gave me a kiss, if that was, you know, a, a sexual thing or, you know, I, I mm -hmm. couldn't discern the difference. It was all an unknown, um, I'm sure. People it was. It people was. weren't talking about that kind of thing as much in the 80s. No, no, not back then. That's for sure. Yeah, because this would have been around like 81, 82. So shortly after that, I went to go visit my dad in Montana and decided I wanted to stay up there. So um, I stayed in Montana for the rest, you know, until I graduated high school. With the exception of my sophomore year, I did not get along with my stepmom. She's a narcissist and very manipulative. Needless to say, we butted heads a lot. Uh, some point in my freshman year, I, um, I ran away from home. But I did it very stupidly. <laughs> I, I left a note. See, my, my stepmom used to go and she would search my room all the time. So I would leave little um, little notes hidden for her to find. That would just really piss her off. Oh and uh, yeah, it was awesome. Um, so, you know, I, I just I left a note and said, hey, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go live with my brother, my older brother. And um, and so, I, you know, after school, I just walked over to his house. He, he wasn't far from the school. 
you know, of course my parents come home and they find the note and cops show up at my brother's house. Oh my gosh. And they're like, just, you know, they're like, just come down and talk to you, talk to your dad. And, you know, my dad's sitting there crying and I'm like, oh crap, if there's anything I have a weakness for is when a man cries. Mm. So I went home. <laughs> so after that, I was like, you know, look, if I pay for the boarding school, can I pick which one I go to? Because mm. <laughs> I was very realistic back then. So instead, they sent me to Canada, to Vancouver, to live with an aunt and uncle and cousins I had never met. It was the scariest, best thing that ever happened to me. Um, it it was the best year ever. I had a blast. I I learned what freedom was, you know, they were very relaxed parenting. Um, so I had a lot of freedom, which I took very much advantage of (laughs) (laughs) a little too much advantage, you know, so I had, I had a great time up there and I actually met my late husband. We dated my 10th grade year before I moved back to Montana. Yeah. So then I graduated from high school. Just before I graduated from high school, though, I turned 18 in like February of my senior year. And so I moved in with my boyfriend. And the night of my senior prom, after prom, he sodomized me. Oh, my God. This is your boyfriend um, that you were living with? Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was raped on senior prom night. That was lovely. Kind of blocked it out because his justification was it was just his animal instincts taking over. And I'm like, you know, still relatively inexperienced in that area. And I was just kind of like, okay, whatever. Let's just pretend like that didn't happen. And so then I I kind of blacked it out for a few months. Um, And then, you know, I I kind of came to and was like, oh my God, wait, you know, I I can't be with this guy. He raped me. Um, I can't trust him. And so I left him. Um, He's talked to me for a little while after that. Then there was a night that I was out partying with a couple of guys that I knew from work. I worked at a bowling alley and I ended up going back to their apartment with them so that we could drink more. And I blacked out. Uh, I woke up at the next morning, completely dressed, but my underwear, my pants were filled with semen. So I, I had been assaulted basically because I was not present enough to give consent And, you know, I I still to this day, I have no idea what happened, who did what, you know, if it was one of them, both of them, you know, how many times I have no clue. I'm so sorry. So, you know, fast forward, I've just kind of been in and out of several domestic abuse situations when it would start to get bad and they'd start getting physical. I would leave. Then when I was pregnant with my second daughter, I was about five months pregnant with my second daughter. And I was dating who I call a Greek God, who's absolutely beautiful man, but Jekyll and Hyde, you put a drop of alcohol in him and he just turned into this wild, crazy dude. Well, he came over one night and he wanted to have sex and I didn't. And so he started trying to pull my clothes off of me and, you know, pulled me down into his lap and he wouldn't let me go. And so I punched him in the side of his head to get me to let me go. So he stood up over six feet tall, picked me up and threw me onto the floor five months pregnant. Only time I ever called the police. Um, And I did call the police on him. And the cop came and was interviewing me. He took off and and ran and hid. The cop came and interviewed me and said that I shouldn't have hit him. So 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just kind of bounced around from there. Um, I was never very stable in my 20s. We, me and my girls, we bounced around a lot. I married several times. And it wasn't really until I got to Georgia that I settled down and got stable. And, you know, you asked me what brought me to Georgia. I always tell people it was the Greyhound because uh, I caught a bus from, from New Mexico to, to Georgia. Oh, my gosh. So what helped you break the pattern? So I was married to my younger girl's dad for 12 years, even though we had moments in there. Uh, there was a few moments, especially the first year where he was relatively abusive. As long as I could control his drinking, I could control everything else. So it wasn't until I actually left him and I was with Mark, my late husband, um, the one that I had dated in, in Canada, that I learned a lot about myself. Um, and it wasn't until I was really starting to do this speaking out and talking to people and that kind of thing. I realized I, w- I was interviewing a lady about um, addiction to love and addiction to relationships. And when I was interviewing her for a podcast, that's when it really hit me that, oh my God, that's my problem. You know, I am addicted to that high you get, that elation when you first enter a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's fun and it's exciting and you're getting to know each other. And so, when I would get bored in a relationship or I would, you know, it would start to get hard. I would look for something else. I was always Mm -hmm. looking for the greener grass. Mm. And it wasn't until I discovered that about myself that I was able to break the cycle and break the pattern. Wow. For a long time, I lived with the fear of abandonment. When my parents divorced when I was five, dad left. Then when I was like five, mom realized you know, she just couldn't handle being a single parent. Mm-hmm. And so I got sent to go live with my grandma, who, you know, was great, a little on the abusive side, verbally and stuff, a little mm-hmm. quirky, but it just further seeded that abandonment issue because I was like, well, why didn't dad want me? Why didn't dad fight for me? Yeah. It sounds like you're tossed around a bit too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up just kind of bouncing from guy to guy to guy trying to find love and acceptance, you know, I was looking for it from the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned a husband who died. We had a great relationship. We were married for almost six years when he died. Um, he died a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was, it was probably the most positive relationship I've, I've ever had or I'd ever had up until then because I am engaged now and we have a fantastic relationship. Oh, I'm so glad. He, I was with him when I pretty much discovered Okay, this is why I am the way I am. Yeah, that was the aha moment in your life, huh? Yes. So you also describe an addictive personality and said you gave up drinking. Do you feel like Mm -hmm. that's connected with your childhood abuse and trauma? I think a lot of it is genetic. Come to find out my dad had a gambling problem and my brother was addicted to drugs and stuff. So the addictive personality, I think, kind of just runs through us. I started with food addiction when I was five. And and then when I first came to Georgia is when the drinking really started getting kind of crazy. You know, before then I was never really a big drinker. I would, you know, I'd go hang out at the bar with my friends and have a beer or two or whatever. But other than like, you know, a couple of times, I never really got drunk, drunk, especially after I blacked out and was raped. I, I quit drinking whiskey at that point. But when I came to Georgia, 
I would, you know, every night the neighborhood dads would go and hang out in the cul-de-sac or whatever and, and drink beer and stuff. And I'd go up there and hang out with them. And, you know, one day I realized I was drinking a six pack a night mm. and I was like, you know what? I'm not going down that road. We're, <laughs> we're not going there. So mm-hmm. I, I just haven't quit. That's been pretty much 20 years ago. Um, I've had a few drinks here and there, you know, Mm -hmm. socially, like maybe one or two, but, you know, really, I'd say for the past 15 years, at least, Mm -hmm. I I haven't had a drop. Wow. And you did that cold turkey? You didn't go go to recovery? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just woke up one day and I was like, yeah, we're not, we're not doing this. We're we're not going here. And I just stopped drinking. You know, it's so interesting because another Theme through my podcast, not just Georgia, but also I have interviewed a number of people who gave up drinking cold turkey, which is fascinating because my brother's an addict and he's in recovery mm-hmm. through AA. I mean, he's very loyal to AA. So I find it really interesting that almost everybody I've interviewed who's sober did it on their own. This, that must have been so hard. You know, honestly, I wasn't really addicted to it too much back mm-hmm. then. It wasn't that. I woke up and, and had to immediately start drinking or, you know, I, I wasn't far gone. Uh-huh. And I think it was a social thing. Social it thing. wasn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it wasn't a, um, oh my God, I need to have a drink or, you know, I've got the shakes and mm-hmm. the DTs and all of that. Think, so, right. you know, I, I, I nipped it in the bud before it got bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drinking is a very social thing, isn't it? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, and I used to work in bars and stuff. So, of course, you're going to hang out and, you know, have a few after work or, you know, somebody's going to buy you a, a shot during during work or whatever. So, you know, you're going to have it. And, yeah, it's, it's completely social. Yeah. Until it's not. Right. So let's talk about your career path. Tell us what you've been doing through your life in your career and how you found your fertile ground in your career. I mean, most of my life was just, you know, bouncing from job to job. I did at one point decide I was going to go into the accounting field and started going to college for that. I worked in an accounting firm for a little while. You know, again, it was just, you know, kind of whatever job, you know, assistant store manager for Joint Fabrics, you know, vice president of a small financial finance company, you know, things like that. And then, you know, none of that was just, it wasn't cutting it. When I was my last actual job, I was working, you know, probably 60, 70 hours a week. I never saw my kids. And I was gone. I had to commute to Atlanta. So I had a certain window in the morning that if I missed that window, I was guaranteed stuck in traffic. So mm-hmm. I was gone before my kids got up. A lot of times I would come home either just in time to put them to bed or they were already in bed. And that wasn't working for me. So I quit my job. And started a virtual assistant company. And this was back, you know, 2007 when nobody knew what a virtual assistant was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing and I had to learn as I, as I went. But, you know, I did that for a good, you know, 10 years. And then I just got tired of sending out other people's newsletters and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just, it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. It, it suited me great for, for a while. I had lots of freedom and flexibility. I was there for my kids. I didn't have to worry about taking time off from work if a kid was sick or, you know, anything like that. So then I decided, you know, it's time to figure out what I really want to be when I grow up. I knew that I wanted to work with women and I knew that I wanted to, you know, help them, empower them, 
and that kind of thing. But I, I didn't really know what that looked like. So I tried a few different things that didn't really take off. And it wasn't until when Mark died that, you know, it really hit me. I want to work in trauma. I want to work with trauma victims. It started out with sexual assault and domestic abuse victims because that was my background. And now I work with, you know, just trauma victims, period. Got my certification as a trauma recovery coach. I got certified in cognitive behavioral therapy and I hung out my shingle as a, as a coach and that didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And a lot of it was, you know, was me. I didn't feel right charging for my services, which is silly, but it didn't feel right. You know, these, these women would come to me who've been raped. They've been beaten by their husbands. They're, they're trying to move their way forward. You know, I'm saying, yeah, great. You know, it's going to be X amount of dollars a month for me to help mm-hmm. you. And they're mm-hmm. like, I, I can't. Uh-huh. It always felt just not right to me. And then on the flip side, I also found out that or discovered that so many of these uh, survivors desperately need the help, mm-hmm. but they don't have the funds. They, they don't have the resources to pay for therapy or pay for a coach. You know, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most therapists won't take health insurance because it takes forever to get paid back. So you've Mm got to pay out of pocket and then submit the claim to your insurance and wait forever to get paid. You know, and coaches, that's not covered by insurance. That's when I started the Global Association for Trauma Recovery, which is what I'm working on now. I started it in July. So just a couple months ago. We're still in the process of getting everything up and running, waiting for the IRS to approve our 501c3. But the premise behind it is that every survivor deserves a chance to thrive. And so we want to be the resource for them to come and get information about trauma, about healing, about how to support family members who've gone through trauma and just be that starting off point to getting the help that they need with information we have a discussion forum, and they're going to create a scholarship program for people who really just cannot afford therapy but des- desperately need it. So you found your fertile ground is figuring out that you need to find a way to provide low to no cost trauma support. Sounds like exactly, yeah, feels a lot better than getting people to pay for it. I bet, yeah, it it does, it does, um, because I'm I'm helping a demographic that truly needs it. That just gets overlooked. So what's the difference between trauma release and trauma recovery? Trauma release is just so much more empowering. Recovery to me always sounded like you're recovering from an addiction or, you know, that kind of thing. It just always had that kind of connotation around it. Whereas release, you're releasing the trauma from your body, from your life. And it it just felt more empowering. I don't use that term as much anymore just because it's not as recognized as trauma recovery. My own story with trauma is I was sexually assaulted when I was 13. And what was so interesting for me, what I've learned about it in my life is that I really didn't process it very much at the time. There were three of us. I was the oldest girl and I kind of went into protector mode. I had a lot of support. My parents were both therapists, a lot of family support. But what was so interesting is that I had major PTSD like 30 years later when I was called to be on a jury for a case that was very similar to mine. And I thought I could do it. And then as 
the judge and the lawyers were asking me all these questions, I started shaking. And I realized that I could not be impartial. To get off of the jury, I had to tell everybody my story. I had to tell everybody that I'd been assaulted. And that was so upsetting for me. I still, I'll never forget leaving the courtroom, feeling completely you know, exhausted and calling my husband in tears and everything. I was just so surprised that it was still inside my body for so long. It really kind of knocked me off my confidence level, I guess. It's like, right, knocked off the kelter there. Yeah, I mean, and I deal with everyday PTSD because I have discomfort around being out alone in the dark Mm because it happened at night. I hear you there. Yeah. Um, So there are little things like that, but generally on a day-to-day basis, I have a really good life. I feel like I'm not living in PTSD generally, but so that was a real eye-opener for me that I had not, my body had not processed it. Triggers can come when you least, and they usually do come when you least expect yes. it. You know, you never know what's going to set something off and, and what might set you off one day may not affect you the next. Our bodies store that trauma at a cellular level. Mm-hmm. If you don't process it, you don't release it from your, and that's where, you know, I like the term release. You don't let go of it. It just sits there in your body and festers until one day it just bubbles up and comes out. Yep. Exactly. So what have you learned about trauma and working with your clients? So I've learned a lot about trauma. You know, there's just so much and there's so much more to learn. You know, I never knew that you started at a cellular level. I didn't realize that, you know, it affects all aspects of your being. Those are some of the things that I've really learned. But, you know, what I've really learned is that as survivors, one of the biggest things, you know, we deal with guilt and shame and self-abuse we berate ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're horrible to ourselves. And so I really had to learn kindness and compassion and patience and just, you know, have to remember that my journey is my journey and, you know, nobody else is going to be on the same journey that I'm on and everybody else's healing journey is, is personal. And it's, it's theirs. They heal on their own timeframes. There's no cookie cutter process for healing from trauma. And just have to really practice that that compassion and, and kindness and, and patience with yourself. Yes. Have you done a lot of research or learning about generational trauma? That's trauma that's passed down from generation to generation. They've traced it back to like 17 generations. I was in a class the other night. We were talking about intergenerational trauma with Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And that stems back hundreds of years. Right. Basically, it just carries down in our DNA, really. It isn't until somebody becomes fully aware and can stop that cycle and break it that, you know, the generational trauma will stop. So let's talk about your podcast. You do a podcast three times a week. Is that right? I do. Oh, yes. my gosh. I can't imagine. That's a lot. It is. But it's the only way I can keep up with the guest flow. Wow. Um, you know, I, I got to the point where I was scheduling you know, six months in advance, even when I moved it to three days a week, I was still three, four months out in advance, which is a good problem to have. But releasing trauma, a survivor's podcast is, you know, survivors who come on the show, experts that come on the show. We talk about different things related around trauma, healing modalities, techniques, you know, people come on and just tell their stories. It's a great show. I absolutely love it. So what have you read or watched recently that has inspired you? 
Oprah Winfrey's latest book that she wrote with um, Dr. Bruce Perry, uh, What Happened to You? Oh, I had, I'm not aware of was, that. Oh, oh you, you definitely need to read it. Really? That was such a good, in fact, I'm, I've got it sitting on my, my end table next to my side of the couch because I'm going to read it again. There's so much information about trauma and how it affects us and how it affects our brains. And it was really, really a good book. I'm always looking for book recommendations. So that's good. I will look yeah, that up. That was a good one. Yeah. What gives you joy in your life? You know, one of the things that really brings me joy is is actually helping others. And I don't mean for that to sound cheesy or anything, but that, you know, that is, it's, it's something that it helps me, it heals me and, and it just fulfills me. You know, of course, family, my loads of animals that I've got. Actually, they bring me more headaches and joy at this point. Really? <laughs> I have I have a puppy that um, has decided she likes drywall. Oh. So I have several spots around my house now that, you know, she's eaten a big chunk of the drywall. Oh, no. Um, yeah. So I'm just kind of chilling until she gets out of her destructive phase. But no, I, I love my animals. You know, and it's just little things like, going outside and enjoying nature on a a beautiful day or smelling the air after it rains and, you know, things like that. You have grandchildren too? I do. I have two grand grandbabies. Yeah. Those are, those are my doll babies. Yeah. How old are they? They are nine and six. Oh, nice. I'm sure they can enjoy as well. They're all grown up. Oh, Nice. So is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I hear these stories of, of people that have just gone through horrible nightmares and things that you just couldn't even fathom. And now they're happy, they're healthy, they're blessed, they're, they're fine. And those stories really give me encouragement to continue doing what I'm doing. I, I absolutely love true grit stories where they have just overcome life's challenges and didn't let it stop them. Yeah, me too. That's why, that's why I'm podcasting. I'm with you on that. Right? <laughs> yes. So my final question is, it sounds like you've really found fertile ground in your own life, in your career path. So what would you advise to other people who want to find their own fertile ground in what they're doing for a living? Really just look inside yourself. What is that passion? What is that spark that just really fascinates you or brings you happiness? And go with it. Uh, Life is too short to be stuck in a cubicle when you really want to be out taking pictures of nature or, you know, something like that. So yeah, just just find what makes you come alive and do it. Is there a particular job in your past history that you think back to, you think, oh my God, I can't believe I ever did that. And can you imagine if I was ever still doing that? You know, all of them, all of them, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. You know, you know, um, I mean, I, I've worked in bowling alleys. I worked in nursing homes. I've done security, things like that. So yeah, I couldn't imagine still doing it. Honestly, I can't imagine working a job again. Yeah. Um, right. Because I have been uh, self-employed for 15 years. Uh-huh. It's tough because I, I am actually looking at jobs in the advocacy field, uh-huh. you know, just to see what's out there. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I'm like, part of it is kind of cool to to think about going back out and being around people and then I'm like, oh my gosh, giving up my freedom. I know. My, you know, I know. my, my ability to schedule myself. Mm-hmm. And I, 
So, and having to work for a boss that you might not respect potentially, that's one of my biggies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, having to ask for a day off again. Yes. And I yes. ask for a day off in forever. Usually I just say, I am taking the day off, or, you know, I just do it. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I wish you all the luck with your nonprofit. It sounds like well, a wonderful you. opportunity. I hope that it is really your calling and your vocation that you could work, make it work out so you can provide low to no cost trauma support. Sounds like a wonderful avocation. Thank you. I hope so too. Yeah. I hope thank, so too. Thank you so much for your time, Tracy. It's been great to talk to you and meet you. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure, Marie. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad Tracy was able to climb her way out of self-destruction so she can help other trauma survivors. You can see photos and a link to Tracy's website and podcast at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com. Look for the Finding Fertile Ground podcast tab. Next week on the Companies That Care podcast, I interview Mallory Dunn of Smart Glamour in New York City, an ethically made, inclusively sized, customizable clothing line that focuses on accessibility, size and price, and accurate representation. If you're inspired by this episode or any others, or have an idea for a guest or topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. I love to hear from listeners. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review.